Contented Media presents Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. An original podcast series with Mark Hunter and Arthur Van Pelt. Welcome to a special bonus edition of Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, the podcast that does indeed lift the lid on the efforts of Mr. Craig Stephen Wright to gain acceptance as Bitcoin's pseudonymous creator. My name is Mark Hunter, and with me, as usual, is semi-professional Craig Wright debunker Arthur Van Pelt, and we're here to guide you through the complex and tangled web that is Craig Wright's claim to be the mother and father of Bitcoin. Series one may be over, but we are far from done. Of all people, Arthur and myself know all too well just how long and convoluted the Craig Wright story is, and so we recently opened up the floor to questions so that our listeners could fill any gaps that remain in their knowledge or seek clarification on anything they're confused about, which could be a lot. Arthur, are you comfy in your mastermind chair? (laughs) Yeah, I am, Mark. Uh, It was an uh, enormous pleasure to create these uh, Dr. Bitcoin episodes uh, with you, so... uh, now let's check out what questions our listeners uh, have. Absolutely. Let's let's try and sign off in style, shall we? So let's start with the Kleiman case. Um, did Ira Kleiman's counsel believe that Craig Wright created a Bitcoin or did they know he was a fraud? Yeah, that's a uh, tremendously good question to start with, uh, Mark. Uh, to be honest, I have my thoughts, but they have not been uh, confirmed by either Ira Kleiman or his counsel. And maybe we will learn more about this subject, uh, what they actually believed in the upcoming years. I don't know. Currently, my impression is that uh, Ira Kleiman certainly thought for a long while, probably from uh, early 2014 all the way up to the start of the lawsuit in uh, February 2018, that Craig Wright was involved with uh, the inception of uh, Bitcoin. And the fact is, uh, the premise of the lawsuit against Craig Wright was uh, that they did not contest uh, Craig's uh, claim to be Satoshi. And the listener might even remember the August uh, 2019 uh, ruling of uh, Magistrate Judge uh, Reinhardt. I will read it uh, for you. Two preliminary points. First, the court is not required to decide and does not decide whether defendant Dr. Craig Wright is Satoshi Nakamoto, the inventor of the Bitcoin cyber currency. The court also is not required to decide and does not decide how much Bitcoin, if any, Dr. Wright controls today. For purposes of this proceeding, the court accepts Dr. Wright's representation that he controlled directly or indirectly some Bitcoin on December the 31st of 2013 and that he continues to control some today. It's of course pretty clear that Irish Council was aware that Craig Wright is a fraud, but my educated guess is that they intended to use the representations or it's maybe better to say misrepresentations of Craig Wright against him. And that includes, of course, the Satoshi Nakamoto claim. And then there's a follow-up question to this, which is related. If Wright isn't Satoshi and Kleiman clearly isn't, does that mean that the trial was just a big hoax between two people that has nothing to do with Satoshi Nakamoto? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Let there be no doubt about this. None of the two individuals, Craig Wright and Dave Kleiman, had anything to do with the coding of Bitcoin, the writing or editing of the Bitcoin white paper, the launching of Bitcoin, the mining of Bitcoin in the early years, etc., etc. In that sense, this lawsuit can be considered uh, 
yeah, I would call it a total sham, based on a fantasy story of Craig Wright that he basically made up in 2014 to advance his uh, tax fraud in Australia. Let's be honest, he is uh, still stubbornly continues to hold on to uh, this story up till today. So in my opinion, this is a piece of guesswork here, what Ira Kleiman hoped for is the general rule for fraudulent misrepresentation damages. They will be corrected as if the representations had been correct, which means that Craig could have been punished as if he was Satoshi Nakamoto with an estimated 1 million Bitcoin uh, that he had mined in the early years. However, when I read the jury instructions during the trial period in November, I got a bit doubtful if this would work out like this in the lawsuit. Because Judge Bloom, who approved the jury instructions suggested by Craig's and Iris counsels, she didn't guide the jury into this as if representations had been correct direction. So it ended up that Craig's Satoshi claim was rejected, although there is of course no ruling about this. And with it, automatically, the partnership with Dave Kleiman that Craig Wright many times falsely represented to many parties in the period from late 2013 to at least August 2018 was rejected too. Well, admittedly, some people will find this uh, hard to understand because in the mainstream media it has, and it was hilarious to read, it has been mentioned uh, several times that Craig was declared Satoshi in this lawsuit and was allowed to keep uh, 50 billion in bitcoins, which is roughly uh, the Satoshi stash. But no, it's pretty simple. Ira's counsel has been defending the supposed Bitcoin partnership between Dave and Craig with dozens, literally dozens of examples where Craig admitted that the two of them cooperated and partnered in creating Bitcoin, editing the white paper and, and all that stuff in mining. The first line that Craig wrote to the climate estate, your son Dave and I are two of the three people behind Bitcoin. So both claims, the Satoshi claim and the partnership claim, they cannot be seen separate from each other, if you ask me. And they were both at the same time rejected. And because of that, no breaches of the partnership were found and penalized. And instead, only a case of conversion was found because that was what really happened late 2013. And looking at the conversion and the verdict uh, based on that, the next question is, can you clarify who were the beneficiaries of the $100 million Climb versus Right award? And what evidence has been presented from both sides over the ownership rights? Yeah, the, the, the $100 million was awarded to the company WNK Info Defense Research LLC, which was the company that was raised early 2011 by Dave Kleiman and Dave Kleiman alone. And when Dave died in April 2013, this company, WNK, meanwhile struck from the registry in Florida, automatically fell in the hands of his brother, Ira Kleiman, who is 100% the heir of Dave Kleiman according to Dave's will. So there's hardly anything more clear-cut as this. Dave owned the W&K company, and now his brother Ira does. It's that simple. So in the end, the 100 million will fall completely in the hand of Ira Kleiman. And of course, after some parties involved in the lawsuit, and perhaps the tax man, I don't know, take their uh, rightful cuts. But, <laughs> of course, don't think Craig Wright will back down soon uh, about this, because as long as Calvin Air is paying the bills, Craig will try every chick in the books to keep as much of the 100 million in his own pockets. Over the course of the Kleiman versus Wright lawsuit, Craig tried a few times to argue that Dave was not the only member in WNK and others, from his ex-wife to himself to one of his companies, were members of WNK too. But all these attempts 
of course supported by the well-known sloppy creek white forgeries, failed so far. There's still uh, one lawsuit in another court uh, that needs to conclude, as it was stalled, uh, waiting for the for the final judgment in Climate versus Wright. But that will no doubt be more of the same forgeries and false statements of Craig Wright being called out. And Dave Kleiman will also over there be declared 100% member and Ira Kleiman is 100% his heir. So there is no doubt in anyone's mind that uh, it will end up that if they manage to get the 100 million, it will go to uh, Ira Kleiman. And looking to Craig Wright's wider legal cases, this is the next question. Arthur, could you please give a summary of Craig's existing court cases, particularly versus Hoddlenaut? What are the laws that apply in these? And is it true that defendants will have to prove that Craig is not Satoshi? Yeah, now let me first make the disclaimer that I only uh, uh, followed a few law courses. And since law interests me in general, I read a lot about it. But I'm not a certified solicitor, attorney or lawyer or whatever. So please take my opinions for what they are. Opinions of an informed uh, amateur. So there are still several cases uh, running. One case is what I call the pineapple hack. That is against uh, 16 developers and 12 of them being uh, Bitcoin developers. There is the COPA case which is uh, the COPA organization, plus uh, four added parties, Kraken, Coinbase, Michael Saylor's MicroStrategy, and Square. Uh, for Craig not having Bitcoin copyright, there is uh, the Hoddlenot case, which is actually two cases, one in Norway for not being Satoshi, one in UK for Libel that Craig uh, started against Hoddlenot. Then there's still the Peter McCormick uh, Libel case running in the UK, and probably this is about it. But it would not surprise me if we see uh, next year a few more cases uh, start against Craig or Craig starting cases against other. But at the moment, these are the running cases. It's pretty hard to give a summary, as most of these cases are still running without too much excitement going on. Peter McCormick's case has been trimmed down to only a determination of serious reputational harm to Craig Wright. Copa just won a little strike against uh, Craig because they were allowed to file uh, Kleiman versus Wright material uh, in their case. Just after the trial, a lot of um, exhibits and, uh, and, and transcripts of, uh, of hearings were filed in the, in the public court docket. Copa filed the material. Craig tried to stop them because it's quite uh, compromising material that they uh, probably filed. I, I don't know which, of course, but... Uh, if uh, Craig tries to stop uh, material from the climate case, then of course it's compromising uh, material. And they were allowed. Now, Hoddlenaut uh, is also an, um, a running case. He filed recently some roughly 3,500 pages of material. No idea exactly what. But uh, also it was mentioned that there was an expert report uh, between them. And a pretty hefty one, several hundred uh, pages I, I heard. And my guess is that uh, this uh, expert report is dealing with the Craig Wright forgeries or inconsistencies in uh, Craig's uh, Satoshi career. Now, and the only case where we have no public status updates is for the for the pineapple hack uh, case because it is all in uh, in England, and we have no public uh, court dockets uh, exactly in uh, in in those cases. And I think that case is still in the early stages of um, the so-called jurisdiction question. Is this the good jurisdiction to do this uh, case? But to be honest, I have no idea what's going on there at the moment. One thing regarding the Hoddlenort case, the Norwegian one, didn't he tweet recently that Wright had succeeded in delaying it for like a, an indefinite period? Yeah, I noticed that. And um, that was a bit of a 
weird uh, twist uh, that they tried to give on it as if it was Hoddlenot's fault that it was delayed. No, it wasn't. Of course it wasn't because Hoddlenot hold on and even uh, requested that uh, they wanted to continue with the trial in January. It was actually Craig Wright who requested to delay it and that gives, in my opinion, an uh, indication how um, compromising the material was that Hoddlenot uh, filed uh, over there and that Craig is now trying to delay but they made it look like as if Hoddlenot is trying to delay the case but it is absolutely not the case if I understood uh, the tweets of Hoddlenot he is not delaying it's actually Craig Wright delaying Hmm. well related to that there's a follow-up question to this legal case which is how will Craig Wright and Calvin Ayer spin it if Craig loses any or all of these cases yeah, that's a good one. Craig's uh, Satoshiness is basically only challenged by Copa and by Hoddlenot in uh, in Norway. So if Craig is losing one or both of those uh, cases, that will be a massive loss for the false narratives that they are uh, trying to spread about Craig being Satoshi. But of course, they will not hesitate to, to come up with some uh, conspiracy theory again. For example, that uh, the judges or the jury have been bribed uh, by the Bilderberg cabal or by Mastercard <laughs> or the Rothschild uh, bankster family, something like that. You know, you never know what they come up with. Either they win or they lose, and they try to make it a win. Well, I remember I tweeted around the time that the Kleiman case was, as we thought at the time, coming to a verdict, and I think I said that if they lose on every single count, their argument will be that a jury is a matter of collective opinion and not fact. So we know for a fact that Craig created Bitcoin and the jury is wrong. But then, of course, because the jury comes out, the majority on their side, the jury's right. Of course they are. (laughs) You know it's going to go like that. Yeah, absolutely. All the time. So going back to the 2016 signing sessions, uh, someone wanted to know a bit more about this aspect of the story. And the question is, Arthur, what are your thoughts on the Gavin Andresen signing and the evidence that that suggests it was genuine? And the questioner included a link to a lengthy piece from a Craig Wright supporter about that signing session. So what do you make of the evidence that supports Craig's theory that he did sign on that day for Gavin? Yeah, Gavin is, as we know, many times used or abused for the Craig Wright is uh, Satoshi story. What happened in 2016 during the signing sessions is that he was first posting a blog post on May the 2nd with his approval that he was convinced that Craig Wright is Satoshi Nakamoto. So basically the Craig Grant fans uh, say, and allow me to try to steelman their arguments with a quote from that article that you just mentioned, uh, which is an article from an individual called uh, Zem G., Uh, I know by accident uh, that he regularly writes on the Medium platform, like me. And I'll quote him. The private signature session with Gavin in April 2016, however, is nonetheless very strong evidence because it happened under a very highly controlled environment. Gavin knows it and he has never denied it. Well, and actually it is true. Gavin never completely turned around to say it didn't happen. There was no genuine signing. On the other hand, it is undeniable that Gavin Andreessen, after his May 2nd, 2016 blog post, always showed mild to very strong doubts about the whole thing. And my standard answer to those who think that Gavin is uh, strongly endorsing Craig Wright as Satoshi Nakamoto is a quote of uh, Gavin from May 6th or something, a few days after the reveal of the, the signing sessions. 
Gavin is actually uh, saying exactly the opposite of um, an endorsement. And I will quote him, which is a quote from an email that he uh, read out loud in uh, one of his depositions in the Climate versus Right lawsuit. Given his extreme efforts to avoid releasing a public signature, I'm starting to doubt that Craig actually possesses the key he claims he has. And he did somehow manage to trick me and perhaps has been deceiving people for many years. Now, and this is exactly the point, eh? no public verification of a signing, then it didn't happen. And that's my simple rule where I go by and many with me. So the signing session of Gavin Andreessen is highly questioned. Mm -hmm. And you might remember that I did a long, long, long article about it, about uh, the signing sessions uh, debacle. And there is where it is explained how a signing session, as it was presented to Gavin Andreessen, can be bamboozled, can be hacked with a few lines of code in the, um, in the Electrum wallet. I mean, we went through this in episodes three and four. And one thing I remember from when we discussed the fallout from that particular session was this claim of a highly controlled environment. But it wasn't controlled. You know, I remember at the time I said that there was a clear list of instructions that should have been followed to make the whole thing objective. There shouldn't have been anyone that was anything to do with either side controlling that laptop, controlling the internet, controlling all the aspects of it. If that was a scientific experiment, it would be completely canned within seconds because it was so subjective. It's just ludicrous. So how someone can come out and say it was a highly controlled event, it was highly controlled by Craig. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And what is also telling about this whole signing session um, with Gavin Andreessen is that he came with a list of uh, three, four items that he really wanted to to go through. <laughs> yes. And he only got one and the other three items he never got from that whole session. Yeah. So how is it possible that Gavin will endorse Craig Wright as being Satoshi when his list of four items was not even fulfilled? And second, how can we trust Gavin when he was not even able to hold on to those four points to make his point and to make it trustworthy, to become a trustworthy witness to uh, the whole signing sessions when he was so easily bamboozled and uh, easily let go of three out of four items uh, that were never fulfilled. It's beyond me. And I think as well, he is quite an unreliable witness in many ways because he's gone back on his story he's gone back on his opinion and he's flip-flopped and changed his mind so many times since 2016 he was sure then he wasn't sure then he was convinced and he wasn't convinced so really whatever his point of view is now it's kind of been tainted by the fact he's changed his mind so many times so either side can't use anything he says to to ply their case can they what you see uh, the Craig Wright fans, what they do is they just take the breadcrumbs in their advantage. And I will, of course, take the opposite side of that. And I will take the breadcrumbs that will take my side of the story. But my story is also the added evidence is what happened from almost hour to hour in those days. Hey, what is explained in my article, what happened from hour to hour? What happened with the four items that he asked from uh, Craig to be fully convinced? All those things together and the pattern that you can see uh, after 2016, after the May uh, 2nd uh, blog post, is that he has never been fully confirmed. It's always with a mild doubt or a lot of doubt. And if you cannot trust a witness who is fully convinced of something, yeah, then it is not an appropriate witness for a claim that Craig is making. Mm -hmm, absolutely. 
moving on then, here's a very simple one and one of my favourites. Who is more despicable, Craig Wright or Calvin Eyre? <laughs> yeah, good one. <laughs> I try to avoid uh, all too strong language. Sometimes I use words like uh, disgusting and, and, and things like that because the, there are elements... Uh, for example, uh, the element of Craig Wright uh, abusing dead people in his camps, that is a really a disgusting part of what I see as, as his cosplay. He abused uh, Dave Klein and he abused Tim May, which is a living person, Deborah Kopsa, so many people that he abused in his scams and especially abusing the dead, that is not done in my opinion. So if you want to uh, label somebody despicable, I would say Craig Wright. At the moment, I see Craig Wright as uh, the con man who is willingly conning everyone in his neighborhood, and that includes Kelvin Air. Kelvin Air is the rich uh, Mark in the Fictoshi saga who helped Craig Wright financially in and since June 2015, so he could continue his uh, Bitcoin scam. So I would not consider him uh, despicable, but uh, at least uh, a gullible Mark. Fair enough. Very diplomatic of you. So looking to the future... The next question looks at where this whole thing ends up. So how will the Craig Wright fraud end? Will he do a Lance Armstrong and come clean? Will it end with an ATO charge and extradition? Will he simply slink away and live with Calvin Air in Antigua? What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah, to me, the, the most realistic scenario is that the uh, Australian Taxation Office, who is currently in the process of a criminal investigation since at least 2018, uh, we know that from a filing, uh, again, in the Climate versus Right lawsuit, where a uh, lady called Melanie Johnston is requesting the cooperation of Ira Kleiman. And he, she's trying to uh, reach out to Ira Kleiman by uh, sending an email to uh, his counsel, Phil Friedman and Kyle Roche, for help with this uh, inquiry. And she specifically mentioned that she was performing a criminal investigation against Craig Wright. And the signature under the email was also uh, that she is a criminal investigator. What I can see happen is that at some point they will take uh, Craig Wright from the streets uh, after they finalize and conclude uh, their whole inquiry. And make no mistake here, those inquiries take long. The shortest I've ever seen took, I think, four or five years. But many of them take between eight, 11 years. And I've even seen one, although that was not a tax fraud investigation, took even 20 years. <laughs> but roughly between eight and 11 years is what they take for this type of criminal investigation. When it is about the GST refunds uh, that has been set up in a fraudulent way that they ask uh, too much refund, uh, etc. So what I see happen, again, is that uh, the ATO will take uh, Craig Wright from the streets at some point and throw him in jail for like uh, five to ten years. That is the normal uh, jail time what they uh, use in uh, Australia. But of course, it's possible that uh, Craig will take a run uh, before that happens and that he will end up on uh, Antigua with Kelvin uh, Air in a sort of uh, martyrship, entertaining his last uh, few remaining uh, cult members. Well, on that subject of the last remaining cult members, there is a follow-up question, which is, what will it take for BSVers to realise they've been fooled? Yeah, no idea, to be fair. My experience is that uh, the BSV camp is filled with uh, several types of uh, Craig Wright fans. Uh, some will always uh, see him as uh, the father of uh, Bitcoin, whatever happens. And even if he comes clean and admits that it was all a cosplay uh, to fool uh, Australian taxpayers and uh, rich investors like Kelvin uh, Air and others, even then those people will say, yeah, this is only Craig's next five-dimensional chess game move. On the opposite side of the spectrum, 
spectrum. There are the BSV fans who just think that BSV is awesome uh, technology, as Bitcoin uh, was always meant to be. And it's not important who is Satoshi. So they pretend uh, to not care if uh, Craig is uh, Satoshi or not. Now, we're going to go a bit left field with this one. Do you think it's possible, as has been posited by others, that Paul LaRue was Satoshi and Calvin obtained a stolen hard drive and their true endgame is trying to unlock the encrypted coins? Could he have spent all the time claiming Wright has the coins while trying to crack it, but ultimately failing? This is a bit of a conspiracy theory that uh, has a few uh, fans to follow this uh, story for a bit. Uh, I'm not a big fan of this because uh, LaRue has nothing to do with uh, Bitcoin. Uh, But yeah, I'm aware that some people throw some breadcrumbs uh, together uh, like they do with uh, Craig Wright. And then they claim that LaRue is uh, probably the perfect uh, Satoshi candidate. But I've never come across his name, to be fair. But on the other hand, I don't research too much who is uh, Satoshi either. Allow me to tell you an anecdote. The question if LaRue is Satoshi was once, like almost three years ago, asked uh, in an email to a lady called Elaine Shannon. She wrote a, a book called Hunting LaRue, and she is seen as an expert on uh, on the subject of uh, LaRue. So the person who asked uh, this question by email then posted the answer on, uh, on Reddit, and I grabbed it so I can uh, read the full story for you, because it's a very interesting email. So this was his, uh, his story. My original question was something along the lines of, do you think that LaRue could be Satoshi? Because of the timelines, they are matching up roughly with the time that Satoshi disappeared and that LaRue was arrested. And also the backgrounds in cryptography, like E4M and TrueCrypt, etc., they they match. Elaine wrote back to this uh, person. Thank you for writing me. I agree that it's fun to speculate about Paul LaRue and what a man with his brain power would make of cryptocurrency, the dark web and all sorts of marriages of technology and crime. But if you've read Hunting LaRue, you know I've had extensive and in some cases exclusive access to several people who know Paul LaRue as well as anyone can. I've concentrated on exploring his character as they observed him at close range. And since the theory came out, I've contacted all of them. And the opinion is, no, he is not Satoshi Nakamoto. As I mentioned on my Twitter feed, he didn't have the necessary time to spend experimenting with a project whose money-making potential was uncertain at best. And in the 1990s, he was hustling hard. He published E4M in 1998 as a means of advertising his skills, but he was also chasing IT jobs on several continents and looking to get married again. From 1999 to 2002, he was working long hours as CTO of SecureStar, a cybersecurity venture set up by Wilfried Hafner, LaRue's mentor at the time. Hefner was close to LaRue but fired him in 2002 when he discovered that LaRue had pilfered and sold a valuable string of code developed by others in the company to operate security devices called crypto tokens. And after that LaRue went off to make his fortune and founded RX Limited as a startup internet commerce pharmaceutical sales venture in 2004. His sites brought in 300 million in sales between 2007 and 2011, according to a DEA analysis. He never asked for payment in Bitcoin or offered to pay for anything in Bitcoin, as far as my sources know. 
He always took payment for pharmaceuticals in the form of credit card charges, usually Visa. He considered setting up his own bank and Visa franchise. For darker deeds, he wanted cash or gold bars, and Iran paid him for an explosives formula with 5 million in gold bars. Wow. <laughs> yeah. In 2009, when Bitcoin emerged, he was busy launching multiple ventures. And as I detailed in Hunting Nauru, among these were small arms sales, trading in hard drugs, trading in smuggled gold, building a submarine, devising a new missile navigation system for Iran and setting up a new base in Somalia, where he intended to make himself into a white warlord, expanding his arms business into an Amazon for arms platform with fortified bases, his own militia, barracks, warehouses for arms, an airstrip, a seaport and so on. Significantly, he discovered oil on the land he controlled, but declined to drill it, saying it would take too long to turn a profit. And to sum up, several associates say he might have the intellectual skills to participate in the invention of cryptocurrency, but he didn't have the resolve, the patience, the passion for that particular kind of secrecy or collaborative band necessary to pull off such a feat. He was a man in a hurry for guaranteed results, fast and he dropped a series of ideas that wouldn't deliver huge returns. He was a loner with no real friends and business partners. And there's a reason he demanded to be called boss and regularly threatened to kill his senior lieutenants. No one discounts the possibility that he might be thinking of a new way to mine cryptocurrency or game the system. He's in a federal facility awaiting sentence and he has a lot of time on his hands. So yeah, that's the whole story of uh, LaRue, uh, Mark. And, and I consider this uh, this source as very trustworthy, as you can uh, imagine. She is well-informed. And um, with her, I do not consider LaRue uh, as an, an element in, in Craig Wright's uh, story or in, in Satoshi's story. He's one of those people, there are a few of them around, who with three or four bits of circumstantial evidence, you can slot them in. And they look on the surface like a very tempting hole to dive down. But if you don't know the person, you know, it's not just the fact that they need to have been around and doing certain things at certain times. As Elaine said, they need to be a collaborative person. They need to be a patient person. And unless you know that individual, you can't claim someone could have developed it if all you know is the fact that they were around at the time and, and they they knew about encryption. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, they just take a few breadcrumbs uh, together and with those breadcrumbs, they make a big claim. And that, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. It, it, way more elements should fit the picture, as you said. Absolutely. So these last few questions are about you, Arthur, and your personal experience with the Craig Wright story. Firstly, what made you start to investigate Craig Wright and what keeps you going? I heard about Craig Wright already before he was into uh, the Wired and Gizmodo uh, magazines in uh, December 2015. Just, just that I remember that his name popped up. Uh, nothing special, actually. But I saw him fail as a Satoshi candidate in December 2015, of course, when the Wired and Gizmodo magazine posted uh, their uh, docs information. Yeah, those few days were kind of hectic, I remember, and I read uh, quite a few things about it. He did not occur to me as a genuine Satoshi candidate. Now, then, of course, May 2016 came, and again, a big failure of a Satoshi reveal. Uh, let's be honest. 
So I was like 99% of the people out there totally done with the guy and I ignored him for many years. I remember that in uh, July 2018, I replied to uh, Craig Wright on Twitter. Uh, when uh, the, I remember there was a discussion about layered scaling of protocols and all he said was loser talk and then he blocked me. <laughs> From there, I uh, ignored him again for almost a year, but especially around March, April 2019, when he started to sue uh, Bitcoiners for uh, for Libel. And that's where I uh, decided to, to map out this uh, fraud that was uh, spread all over the internet in articles, in, uh, links in articles, Reddit and other forums, tweets, blog posts. Uh, so I started uh, to debunk uh, his claims uh, myself. It grew over time and uh, has become more substantial than I thought because uh, I noticed that uh, people started to like what I did. I, uh, I was just a little, very small account, maybe three, four hundred followers back then. And it has grown now to uh, over seven and a half thousand uh, followers. And, and I get a lot of feedback on uh, on that stuff. And why I do it is especially... For two things, I know that several lawyers are following me, several, quite a lot, I think. They can take my material, use it for their cases. And also people who are doubtful about uh, the whole thing. I see a lot of recommendations uh, being made on Twitter uh, and outside Twitter where people say, yeah, if you really want to know something about uh, this camera, then uh, follow Arthur on, uh, on Twitter because he regularly posts uh, about it. No, and that is quite fulfilling, uh, I can tell you. Mm -hmm. talking of feedback the next question is how do you deal with the accusations and the hate from the bsv camp no yeah better than you probably would think because it, it doesn't do me for very much i sometimes say that i have an elephant skin uh, probably i throw back just as hard uh, to no annoy them uh, even harder than they try to annoy uh, me for me it only shows that they don't dare to touch my content and all what they have left then are yeah, lies about me at home and uh, that I'm being paid and whatever they come up with. I can only think of that they must have this sad life that if they have nothing else to tell you, they only attack the messenger and not the message. In my opinion, that's, that's just sad. That's how I see it. And it's also very telling if all the criticism is personal and not about your content. What does that say? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and again, on a related note, the same person asked, have any of you received any threats or similar as a consequence of the podcast? Yeah, a few people have said uh, pretty nasty things uh, about me that, uh, for example, that I'm going to die. Uh, that, by the way, this was actually not about the podcast. This was uh, already uh, happening earlier in 2019 when I filed for the copyright uh, claim in the uh, United States at the Copyright Office. Then there were also already a few people who are uh, yeah, pretty nasty uh, against me. I remember uh, some person that uh, wanted to stab me with a knife or something. And that's a recurring call that I see now with the podcast that many want Kelvin uh, or Craig or both. Uh, they want me to put me into court for libel, defamation, for fraud, for lying, for whatever they can come up with. But again, it, it doesn't do me much because how I see it, and, and I think I'm pretty right here, and that is also the strong point that I use already for years, I have the right to inquire. I use public sources and I always link to them or I can link to them when I'm being asked. And on top of my findings, I have a, well, let's be honest, sometimes strong opinion. So 
Uh, on the other hand, when people correct my findings or point new information to me that I didn't know yet, that fine-tunes or corrects my stance, then I have no issue to excuse myself and use the new info for a new or fine-tuned uh, stance. But this whole process is freedom of speech, freedom of opinion, and it has nothing to do with libel and defamation. I think that is also the reason why those people and their councils never try to touch me. Let's say they try. They have to file, they have to explain to a judge 10,000 of my tweets. They have to list them all. I mean, if you want to attack my oeuvre, then they have to list thousands of tweets and they have to list uh, numerous articles and pretty lengthy articles. Then they have to link because in my articles and in my tweets, I link to a lot of public information, to other articles, to expert witness uh, reports, to ATO reports, to court filings, everything. But my power is that I combine all this information. I connect the dots between the information. And I make a story out of it. And that story is that Craig Wright is a massive fraud. And coming to that conclusion is freedom of speech. That is not libel, that is not defamation, that is just looking at the evidence being presented. I have to say, there was recently something that mildly irritated me, where a BSV fan accused me on Twitter of not paying tax on, uh, on cryptocurrency uh, something, and he posted a letterhead of, uh, of the taxman uh, from my country, where my name and my scrambled address was visible. Since it appeared that they obtained private information about me without my explicit permission, I reported it uh, at uh, the police uh, a few weeks ago. I have been quite lucky myself. I've managed to fly under the radar as far as criticism is concerned. But the one thing that has happened to me was the moment that we announced the podcast on Reddit, I had one guy who I've I've come to know since is, is a massive BSV troll on Reddit and I think Twitter as well. And he was immediately linking the podcast with this MasterCard mafia. It was immediately who's paying you, you know, it's paid FUD, that kind of thing. And yeah, you're, you're being paid off to do this. And I had to prove to him, I said, look, I'm running it through the company. So all the records, all the payments are going to be made public. Oh, but you could be taking crypto under the counter kind of thing. And I said, I'm not going to risk my company and going to jail for this podcast. I'm doing everything I can to prove that this is a completely personal work. I gave him like my website and he was just arguing again and again and again, arguing every single point. It just goes to prove that these people, when they have something in their minds, there is no evidence, there is no theory that can counter it. They can only think in a one-dimensional way. They can't possibly believe that someone's doing something because we don't like the guy. Now, you know a little bit about uh, getting this type of uh, attention. I get this uh, a lot and then I ignore most of it, uh, to be honest. And only when I feel like it, I reply. But mostly I just ignore it. We're coming towards the end now. Um, one person wanted to know, very, very good question. What can regular people do to help the fight against Craig and Calvin? Yeah, but always helps is uh, if you read my uh, my material and, and spread my material, retweet, uh, send people links to my articles. That is always helpful. 
But the minimum I think that you should do, and it's just an advice, I mean, I'm, I'm not the guy to tell you what your investment portfolio should be, but in my humble opinion, it already helps to not use anything do not touch anything BSV. It, it's rooted in Craig's cosplay fraud. It's just his brainchild. Using BSV is participating in the scam. So don't. Yeah, I think the first point you mentioned is really important because the one thing that struck me after the Kleiman trial was the mainstream media reporting. And I should have guessed it was going to be really bad, but I didn't think it was going to be as bad as it was. And it just showed that the vast majority of people out there think that either Craig is Satoshi or might be Satoshi. There's that strong link there. And the mainstream media reporting made it clear that he has got all this Bitcoin that he's managed to keep hold of. And that was a real moment for me because I was like, no, it's completely false. And we have to get the story out there that it's not true. So I think it's just information. It's passing the information on, whether it's Arthur's tweets, Arthur's pieces, this podcast, whatever medium it comes in. The reason why we do this, the reason why I primarily do this is because I don't like him you know, sweeping everything together like he's a gambler. He's won everything and he scoops the money off the table into his lap. I don't want him to cheat his way to that. And I want people to know, to have the real understanding of what he's doing, not get the wool pulled over their eyes. So yeah, from my point of view, I would say definitely get the message out there. If there's someone that thinks they know the story, but they've learned it from mainstream media, don't go crazy on them, but just point them in the direction and say, you might want to do a bit of learning before you go passing his opinions on as fact so that's my two cents there yeah yeah agree we did have one question from a bsv supporter in fact the same question asked twice in a slightly different way but it was about your toilet habits so we won't go there my toilet habits yes yeah no kidding sorry about that yeah no no no. was that the individual uh, who asked if i immediately start tweeting when i wake up uh, or something before you go to the bathroom and yeah yeah i I can answer that anyway yes (laughs) that sometimes happens when i wake up early (laughs) but most of the time it's only after the morning uh, coffee (laughs) (laughs) um here's a final one and it's a biggie who is satoshi nakamoto to be honest i really don't care and i really don't care all we need to know is that in April 2011, uh, Satoshi told several developers, uh, Gavin Anderson, Marty Malmi, Mike Hearn, in private emails, that was the last time that we heard from him, I've moved on. I probably won't be back and it's in good hands with Gavin and everyone. And indeed, we never heard from Satoshi Nakamoto again. And this was, in my humble opinion, the best move ever of Satoshi Nakamoto to make Bitcoin the success that it is now. It's appropriately decentralized. None of the three major stakeholder groups like the users, the developers, the miners, none of them are in control of Bitcoin. There is no figurehead like fake Toshi sorry, Craig Wright, to blame and shame or make responsible for the price discovery or the failure thereof. So please let him be. Bitcoin is a success without the figurehead of uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. I think you might have the same mind as me then, that it doesn't matter who it is, it only matters who it isn't. Yeah. Now, I'm sure there was one more question that was sent in, but I've checked through uh, the tweets, the DMs, the emails, everything I can find. Uh, I, I can't find it. So either it was sent through a different medium or I've completely dreamt it up. So 
If there's someone out there whose question wasn't answered, I'm really, really sorry, but I can't for the life of me find it. Hopefully it was asked by someone else, but if it wasn't, please get in touch and we'll find a way to get Arthur to answer that question. Um, Arthur, thanks for being such a good sport and going through a process that I know you don't like. <laughs> oh, well, it's okay. You know, I'm, I'm more of a researcher. I'm, I'm a reader. I'm a writer. That's what I truly love to do. And I can really dive into that for a few hours a day between uh, the household course, uh, taking care of my two kids, and of course, uh, do my uh, day job. But this podcast, uh, Only Your Professional Guidance, was a great opportunity to reach out to a whole uh, whole new audience. So it was awesome. Yeah. And um, thank you to everyone who sent questions in. Um, hopefully Arthur's answers have filled some gaps for you. This is officially the final episode in this first epoch of Dr. Bitcoin, but we'll be announcing future plans very soon. So make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and our Twitter feed at Dr. Bitcoin Pod. That's at DR Bitcoin Pod to be notified the moment we announce. Arthur, thank you so much for your time and all the best for 2022. Yeah, same to you, Mark. And I'm sure we'll meet again in uh, 2022. You've been listening to Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. Written by Mark Hunter, with additional material by Arthur Van Pelt. Editing and production by Mark Hunter. This has been a Contented Media Production.